You are listening to Evidence of Things Screened. I'm your host, Lincoln Alabaster. Today's show is titled Dream Job. My guest, Adrian Bisfam, is here to explore the deep recesses of the mind as depicted in Christopher Nolan's sci-fi thriller, Inception. Warning, you may be listening to this episode because someone planted the idea in your mind. But keep listening anyway. The next episode of Evidence of Things Screened starts now. Once again, this is Evidence of Things Screened. I'm Lincoln Alabaster, and I'm greatly pleased to introduce my guest today, Adrian Bisfam, who is, speaking of dream jobs, an assistant district attorney for Suffolk County in Boston, Massachusetts. Now, part of the reason I'm so pleased is that Adrian is my nephew, although we're only 10 years apart in age. <laughs> so, Adrian, you were born in Boston, you were raised in Miami, went to college in Miami, undergrad, you went to law school in Boston. Now you live and work in Boston. So when people ask you, where are you from? <laughs> how, how do you how do you answer them? <laughs> um, well, first, I just want to thank you for uh, inviting me on the show. I oh, really appreciate that. Of course. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm really excited to be here and to talk about one of my favorite movies of all time, Inception. Yes. Uh, made by one of my favorite directors of all time, Christopher Nolan. Yes. Did you see Dunkirk? I have not seen it yet. Oh, yeah, 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 and he yeah. says it's his favorite director. Oh, man. <laughs> Horrible. No. Horrible. I know, I know. Um, but to answer your question, yes. uh, I have combined uh, in my life, lived longer in Boston since I was born there. I went to Miami when I was young. I went to undergrad, high school uh, there, and then moved back to Boston when I went to law school. So at this point in my life, I've been in Boston now for about 10 years since law school. Um, you know, I, I kind of consider uh, Boston my home. I mean, my, okay. Miami will always have a special place in my heart, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Bostonian it is. That's yes, good. Yes. That's good. Um, we're basically going to talk about this film in three segments. And the first segment, we're going to talk about the mission and the team. Second segment, there are multiple levels of dreams in this film. So we'll talk about dream levels one and two in the second segment of this podcast. And then in the third segment, we'll talk about dream level three. We'll talk about limbo and just talk about the ending. All right. So let's just jump into this. And I always like to start with the stats inception. It was released with great fanfare. Worldwide box office was somewhere around 825 million eight Academy Award nominations, four wins, including Best Cinematography, Best Visual Effects. It was directed by, of course, Christopher Nolan and a stellar A-list cast, Leonardo DiCaprio, Marion Cotillard, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Ellen Page, Tom Hardy, Ken Watanabe, and Killian Murphy. Um, do you remember your re initial reaction to seeing this film? I think that my initial reaction was... I need to see that again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, th there's just so much. It's so visually appealing. Uh, there's so much action, uh, emotion, mentally, you know, complex. That it, there's just so much to unpack. 
that and I you know I, I definitely was like I want to go through that again um, and that I know that I would you know but mostly I, I just enjoyed the ride and just watching it it was it's a long movie but yeah. it's one of those movies that doesn't feel long because you're you're on the edge of your seat for, for the entire thing yeah so to say that the plot of inception is complex is to grossly grossly underestimate the truth so i'm gonna try to oversimplify this story here just for our listeners it's about a band of thieves and they steal ideas from a person's subconscious and this particular group of thieves are given a new job to plant an idea in a man's mind that leads him to take an action he otherwise would not have taken if you haven't seen the movie i would suggest you see it before listening to the podcast because one will ruin it for you but two you probably won't understand half of what we're talking about right. anyway right um, to say that i understand half of what we're talking yeah. about anyway. <laughs> exactly we've seen it like numerous times and i'm still not sure so there are a thousand and one theories about this film but it's impossible to cover all of them so we're just going to focus more on on the parallels and we'll get to the actual mission of the inception a little bit later but first we're going to cover the events that lead up to it all right so before there was inception in the movie there was deception a, a lot of it right so we start the movie out with the head of an energy company a man named sato which is played by uh, ken Watanabe, listening to uh, dominic cobb DiCaprio and Arthur who's played by uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt so he's listening to them sell their services as security against thieves who steal information from a person's mind while that person is dreaming and it's a process called extracting so the first twist is that while Cobb and Arthur are posing as security they themselves are the thieves they're the extractors and they're working with two other guys on their team, Nash and Tadashi, for this company called Cobalt Engineering. And together, the team is attempting to extract confidential information from Sato's mind pertaining to the expansion of his company, which is a competitor called Proclus Global. So that's twist number one. They're thieves posing as security. Second twist is that Cobb and his crew have actually been outsmarted by Sato he knew their intent and was actually just using this as a ruse to test Cobb and Arthur for a mission that he would like to accomplish. Inception, which is the opposite of extraction. It's, and, and specifically, Sato would like to infiltrate the mind of the CEO of his biggest competitor and plant an idea for him to break up his father's company so that Sato can have a monopoly over the energy market so with all that said when you when it all comes down to it this guy is trying to basically create a monopoly what did mm. what do you think about that as sort of the the motivation it's not it's not an altruistic motivation it's nothing really honorable or grand but this whole movie kind of hinges on one man wanting to dominate an industry what do you think about that as sort of the premise, the underlying premise? I mean, I think that it's in the it can be in the eye of the beholder. Right. So mm -hmm. I think that if and actually it's funny that you describe it that way. I almost took it as 
to a certain extent, not the opposite, but that Sato was actually trying to stop a monopoly from being created. Mm. Because in, in, in the, the scene where he's discussing with Cobb what he wants to do and why he wants to do it and talking about his biggest competitor essentially says that they are on the, the cusp of doing that, becoming an, a monopoly, and that, that one person or one entity would control the world's global en- energy market. Mm-hmm. And so the way he was describing that to me, I took as him describing it as a negative thing, as okay. you wouldn't want to have one company doing that. And so he was trying to break it up. I mean, selfishly, because his company would still be one of the most, if not the Absolutely. most powerful at that point in time, but it, that, that there wouldn't necessarily be that monopoly. I mean, that's how I took it, um, so that there was maybe some slight altruism in his own selfishness, um, you know, gain, you know, but, but either way, I think it's also, you know, this whole world is industrial espionage and stealing secrets, you know, from somebody else's mind for your own benefit, um, you know. And and then in what really is the question of what is Cobb's motivation to do this? And, mm. you know, we'll get to that later. But yes, well, appropriately enough, that is the next thing. So Arthur says that Inception is impossible, but his partner Cobb says it is possible. He says he's actually done it before. It's just that it's very difficult and it's so difficult that he's willing to walk away from it until Sato promises that he can reunite Cobb with his children and get these charges that we'll talk about a little bit later, these charges against Cobb erased. In this environment where they're trying, Cobb and, and Arthur are trying to deceive Sato, and Sato is is um, actually twisting their motivations around to serve him, is this an environment that's possible to establish trust? I, I think it's... It's very difficult to establish real trust in in that type of environment. Um, You know, like we talked about, clearly everyone has their own agendas. Almost everyone clearly is deceiving or being deceptive about something. Uh, But it's not impossible to a certain extent. I think that Mm -hmm. each of their agendas allow for each of them to trust each other to a certain level because they need each other. Okay. And because of their motivations and agendas that kind of align in, in some certain way and that will drive them then to their mutually beneficial goals, right? Right. So Sato wants Cobb and his team to uh, succeed at Inception because it'll benefit him and his company. Mm-hmm. Cobb will fight for success because because uh, succeeding in his mission will uh, deliver him what he believes, uh, you know, to be the most important thing, uh, getting back to, uh, his family, which, you know, we'll, we'll talk about that more, you know, in detail. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and because Cobb, because Sato knows that about Cobb, he can trust that he's going to do his job properly because he knows what he wants. And right. because Cobb knows Sato wants this for his company, he can trust. Right. So it's just like, it's kind of this, I know, I, I know you're negative, you know my negative, and we're using it to exploit each other. Got it. Yeah, no, it's a perfect leverage of of right. Um, motivations, right? Yeah. Like, we know each other's motivation, as you said, the, the negatives, and we'll use that to hold the other person accountable. Now, in the spiritual context, uh, if you feel God is calling you to do something that's impossible, is it necessary to trust him first? before moving forward i think i think it is um you know it's it's different especially you know when if it's something that you feel 
is impossible because if you don't think it's possible, how can you do it mm-hmm. without trusting in someone or something, you know, in God right. that has a higher power than yourself to make it possible, right? If if you don't believe that he can do it, um, you know, how, how do you think you're going to do it? And, and to be honest, God most often doesn't call people to do something that's easy, right? Right. It's often something that's difficult and that they may not have done or think that they can do. It's typically the road that's narrow and less traveled, right? And oftentimes takes a tremendous amount of work and trust to follow where he's leading and to not necessarily know whether you're going to get to a successful outcome in that journey, um, even though it will ultimately be to your benefit. So I, I do think that trust is required in that type of situation where God's calling you. Okay. Yeah, I thought a lot about this, and I'm not sure. I, I think it's best to trust God in this situation where something's impossible initially. But somehow I believe that that obedience supersedes trust, mm-hmm. Yeah. although it will eventually lead to it. And so I thought about Moses when he returned to Egypt to free the Israelites, and he was making excuse after excuse, which had to do with his own insecurities. But at the same time, I think there's some inherent doubt that God could do something through him. Mm-hmm. But he went anyway. I mean, he had 101 doubts. So I think ultimately, like, obedience in his case trumped um, perhaps some sort of trust. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, through obeying and stepping out, mm-hmm. He, he gained the trust that he needed, he gained the faith that he needed to then lead them forward. But I guess the question is, does does trusting God mean that you have no doubts? Hmm. And I, I don't necessarily think that's the case. You can trust in God, but you can doubt or you, you can be have you concerned. Does that mean you don't trust, right? You're right. Like if, you, if, you're, if you take that trust and say, I'm going to obey because I trust, even though even though I have doubts. That's a great point. I think that's... Uh, that's the type of nuance that we like here (laughs) (laughs) on evidence of things green. So does the end justify the means in Cobb's case? I I think that obviously in Cobb's mind, the ends justify the means, you know, he's Mm -hmm. willing to do whatever it it takes to get, to get home, to, to uh, get to his goal. Um, But, you know, I also think, you know, kind of what I alluded to before, there may be some other justifications Saito wanting to break up the monopoly, uh, the fact that um, Fisher, the the Fisher relationship with his father, the way that they played that out, mm-hmm. uh, I wouldn't doubt if Cobb had some idea because he, he goes on to say, right, at some point, right, positive emotion trumps negative emotion yes. every time type, right? So it yes. seems like they can see that this relationship is strained. And although it maybe wasn't their main goal, they actually ended up in some way making that better. Mm. So, you know, so it may not be, that may not have been the end, right. but but it kind of worked out in that way to a certain extent. So, and, and what about the lives of Christians, like Christ followers? Is there a line that should not be crossed or is it the end that we we look forward to and and that justifies the means well you know you definitely asked the tough questions here on, on the show um because yeah that that that's something that i think that you know that i i think about a lot and i think many people struggle with you know it, it does the end justify the means in our in our 
in our daily lives and our Christian walk, you know, is it right to lie to someone to spare their feelings, to yeah. kill someone that may be bringing harm to someone else, to steal something because you're hungry, right? Yeah. Those are those are deep questions. Um, and I I, th- I do think that uh, one of the indicators to me of right and wrong oftentimes is motivation. Why are you doing this thing that you're doing? Mm-hmm. And have you prayed about it? And have you looked to God for guidance one, you know, one way or the other? Um, but at, at the end of the day, what what is your purpose, right? You know, hmm. uh, and, and what do you, are, is it selfish motivation? Is it is it a need, a physical need? Is it is it a protection of others? Those types of things. Right. I think that to me that says a lot more about um, you know what what whether the actions are justified I completely agree motive matters and I know we've said it before on the, on the podcast but it's true and you can do what appears to be the right things for the wrong reasons and yeah. so you could help someone out but you do it so that others can see that you're helping someone out mm-hmm. and so the motivation yeah. is for for me to look good in front of others or yeah. I don't know, taking money that's on the street. It's not yours, but you know, if you if you feel like, man, I, I needed to feed my family and there's this, you know, hundred dollar bill on the ground, it's not yours, but you take it. Technically that's stealing someone's money, but motive matters. And um, you know, we can agree for Cobb, his motive is driving him. Now, at this point, he accepts the job and he assembles his team. He retains his extracting partner, Arthur, and then he finds three new members, Ariadna, who's a brilliant young architect. She's going to design the dream landscapes in which the Inception will take place. And I think in the in Inception, they said five minutes of dream time equals 60 minutes of real time in the real world. Now, Eames, this is continuing on the team. We have Ariadna, who's the architect. Eames, who's played by Tom Hardy, he's a master of forgery and impersonation. And then we have Yusef, uh, played by the actor Dilip Rail, who is a chemist. And he's able to sustain the subconscious for multi-level dreams. And Saito insists on coming along as the client and the financier and to verify the completion of the job. So he's kind of the, the, the other team member, so to speak. Who would you mark as the strongest link in this team? And who would you say would be the weakest link? So I actually saw Arthur as the strongest link. I I thought he um, seems to be as experienced, at least as as Cobb, if not a little less so. Right. Um, He's clearly used to working with Cobb. So, you know, he has Mm -hmm. that good relationship with him. He also seems very uh, calm under pressure. Yeah. And this is a type of situation where you need that. He seems very creative uh, when things don't necessarily go the way they're supposed to. He can improvise. Yes. Uh, a la the second kick that needed to be made, right? That was um, brilliant. Right. But on the first level of the dream, the car is suspended falling off of a bridge. Right. So that means that on the second level of the dream, there's no gravity because in the first level of the dream, they're in the air. In the air. They're and how can you drop if you don't have gravity, right? So he bands everybody together and drops them down elevator shaft like so things like that that you know seem very creative i thought was good ironically enough i Mm. actually found cobb to be the weakest link Mm. of the team Mm. and and i think that that's because 
he clearly has a past and issues that he has that he is aware of but that he can't control and that can affect and did affect the the success of the mission and he was and he refused to tell the rest of the team about that and allow them to work around that or make the choice not to work at all so i think that although he was the leader i think he was actually the weakest link i'm right there with you i thought ariana was was the strongest i liked her because she didn't have any baggage right she's coming in with that she's a brilliant mind i mean even it was uh michael kane who was playing like a professor and yeah, also yeah, dom's, father-in-law dom's father-in-law and he had recommended her because she's so proficient she picked things up quickly she's plus she's very perceptive because she's the one who saw what was going on with Cobb, mm-hmm. and so she's intuitive as well yeah and it just seemed like she was flexible and able to adapt so i liked her yeah she did lack experience but i felt like she made up for that in ingenuity now yes i think Cobb, as a traditional team member he's the weakest but i put down sato because mm-hmm. he's kind of the de facto team member yeah yeah but he is not really contributing and in fact he more or less turns out to be dead weight to the team <laughs> literally, literally. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. he doesn't really bring a skill set he's an yeah. overseer yeah, yeah. um he does finance the the mission so but I, I found that he was ultimately the weakest link so now in assembling a mission critical team we you talk about the wise thing to do is to select individuals with training and experience which we're seeing here in the bible though god often selects and even now in in, in 21st century god often selects untrained people who lack experience to do big things so what are we to learn from from this cuz in our practical lives i mean mm-hmm. you have to have graduated from law school passed the bar yeah that's these are things that are necessary right but a lot of times we find god using people who have who do not have the requisite experience yeah i i think that it shows that god operates differently than people Mm. and and the bible specifically says right that that his ways are above our ways and you know we're never really going to understand or comprehend it right and you know i i heard one i once that god doesn't um call the equipped he equips the called yes right um and so i think that it's easy um to pick people that already know what they're doing that have skills uh right if, if he did that if god selected the best then of course they would succeed and they could and they would just turn around and say look at me i'm great i succeeded yeah right but when god calls those who other people don't necessarily think have what it takes to do this particular job that he's calling them to do mm-hmm. and then they succeed it's an example to everyone and to those individuals themselves to turn around and say i only did this through the power of god exactly for god to work through you have to feel inadequate to some degree right i, I think right is it it's, it's like if the new york knicks were to win the uh the championship <laughs> then uh Ooh. <laughs> it could only be a miracle. <laughs> we just lost our New York audience. <laughs> come back, come back. Well, actually, we are out of time for this first segment, so we will take a break and we'll be back for more with Adrian Biswam. You are listening to Evidence of Things Screened. 
Welcome back to Evidence of Things Screen. This is Lincoln Alabaster with my guest, Adrian Bispham, here to talk about the film Inception in this episode titled Dream Job. So at this point, we covered the team and the mission in the first segment, and now we're going to dive into the machinations of the actual Inception. And so the mission coalesces around the idea of a three-level dream, and the strategy is to get Robert Fisher, the CEO of Fisher Morrow, which is Saito's number one competitor, and plant the idea in his subconscious to dismantle the conglomerate empire that he will inherit from his dying father. And so to plant the idea, the team plans to use some positive emotions. And you mentioned this earlier, Adrian, that they, that line, positive emotion trumps negative emotion every time. We need a positive motivation for this. Now, is there ever a time where negative emotion is a better motivator? Mm, that, huh, I, so it actually makes me think about, and I can't remember what company it is now. Maybe I, I want to say Gatorade. Maybe it's Gatorade, but there's a there's a current commercial out there right now that is mm-hmm. sports related that uh, has Michael Jordan, um, Matt Ryan, oh, yeah. a number of different uh, athletes talking about uh, the things that motivated them. And right. it's all and it's loss, right? Yes. Every time that they lost at something, oh, you know, me joining this team and, and it going mm. down the tubes and then right. And it's always the precursor to something greater mm. after that. Right. Matt Ryan just lost um, the Super Bowl to the <laughs> uh, spoiler alert, New England Patriots, <laughs> the best team in football of all oh, time. Man, anyways, we'll, we'll edit that out. We'll edit that out. <laughs> uh, go Pats. So, um, no, but right. So. Uh, so, yeah, to a certain extent, I think that sometimes loss can be a great motivator. And I, th- and I think it's a, it's a great commercial because I think the message is true. Oftentimes, failures can motivate you to do greater things, to move beyond them. I mean, it can be difficult, and sometimes some people don't get motivated by that, but, but right. a lot of people do. That is right on. And I think we see in the Bible where God uses difficulty and hardship as it's a training ground and ultimately Mm -hmm. I think becomes a motivator to uh, people like Joseph, David. So yeah, I think that's an astute point there. I like that. Failure is sometimes a a greater motivator than success. So now we're, we're at this three level dream we're talking about and each level represents each dream level represents one team member is who's having that dream and it's all set in motion when fisher's father dies in australia and fisher accompanies the the body on a transcontinental flight from sydney to los angeles so on this transcontinental flight sato buys out the plane and the whole team takes the flight with fisher where they'll be sedated and you know, trick him into being sedated. And then all of them will now enter into this three-level dream to accomplish the mission of Inception. So dream level one. This is Yusef's dream, the chemist. And it's mostly taking place on some rainy city streets. The team kidnaps Fisher, and they demand to know the combination of his father's safe. 
but then they're attacked by Fisher's security team in the subconscious. So this tells you that his mind has been trained to prevent someone from stealing his knowledge. In this level also, Eames forges the identity of a man named Peter Browning, who is Fisher's godfather and his business partner, and now also his fellow captive. And Eames impersonates Browning to begin to understand the dynamic of the Fisher father-son relationship and create the idea that Fisher's father had this safe that had an alternate will that would allow Fisher to dismantle his company. That's what else happens. So now we find out that Sato was shot from this subconscious security team and he's wounded. And the problem is that, that at this level of sedation, if he dies in the dream, he wouldn't wake up, but rather he'd go down into this, this timeless place called limbo where he would waste away. And I guess presumably in real life would be in a coma-like state because he would never wake up. And in fact, this is the fate for anyone on the team if they're killed and they're they're under threat because Fisher's subconscious is closing in on them. I think they had them cornered in a warehouse. So this raises the stakes and puts extreme pressure on the team to finish the job quickly. So in this first level, I see Nolan presenting an allegory here about the process of allowing thoughts to enter our minds. Um, do you see that as well, or is there something else entirely that you see? I mean, I think, I, I do think that it, it, it's an example of um, how negative thoughts or thoughts that you don't want mm -hmm. can essentially infiltrate your mind uh you know and the idea of defending against those things uh you know as it's as it's going on and and to a certain extent the difficulty of that right i, I think that unlike in the movie we can't militarize our subconscious into uh blowing up negative thoughts or thoughts that we don't want coming into our minds or into our subconscious that it, it, it's you know physically you know impossible to do but but it's something that does happen you know to to everyone all the time you I know mean, it's hard to sometimes guard guard your thoughts especially you know uh you know in the world that we live in yeah now at this level you know the defense against foreign thoughts are heavy and as they should be, I guess, with us, the more that we we dwell on negative thoughts, the more entrenched negativity becomes in our psyche. Like Proverbs 23, 7, like, for as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Mm -hmm. So having that barrier, that initial barrier is, is crucial. And so no matter who you are, your mind is bombarded with hundreds of thousands, millions of thoughts on a daily basis. So how do you put up that defense against harmful thoughts like Philippians four it says, you know, whatever's pure, whatever's um, righteous think on these things. So how, how do we do this? How do we accomplish this? Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a daily struggle. I think um, it, it's something you do have to con be conscious about and to do it uh, all the time. I think it's, to Philippians point, right, being selective about what you read, who you hang out with uh, and spend time with, the places that you go, 
and the things that you do. Um, now, I think that it's inevitable that you're going to be faced with, um, you know, negative thoughts or impure thoughts or things that you don't necessarily want to be involved in, um, you know, and, and that's kind of say where God comes in, right? But our will mm. is imperfect and his will is, is perfect and stronger than ours, right? And you can only take yourself to a certain point. Um, you have to be disciplined and, you know, you try to do these things and, um, but to a certain extent, you, you, you leave it, you know, you put it in his hands and, and, and also being able to, I want to say forgive yourself, but recognize that you're not perfect and nobody is perfect. And right. Things are going to happen and you're, you know, going to, have thoughts you don't necessarily want to have. You're going to sometimes act on those thoughts and, and things are going to go in a, in a bad direction. But ne but realizing that, you know, there's never a path that's too far down that you can't come back from, right? You might go to limbo, <laughs> but there's always a way out. <laughs> nice, <laughs> nice parallel for uh, Inception. Yeah, I, I agree that we ultimately can only do so much. It's to our benefit and it's our responsibility to control the inputs as much as possible like you said hanging around the right people or watching the right things what have you but even if you do all that you you're still going to be bombarded with with negative things and so for me i found like the key is this term that is was coined by the author francis schaefer and the term is active passivity he used the example of Mary, mother of Jesus, when the angel came to her and told her that she was going to give birth to the Messiah. And she could have said no. She could have reacted negatively. She could have said, okay, tell me you know, what I have to do. <clears throat> but she said, let it be done unto me as you have said. So it's still a choice to Allow submit, it to, to right. allow it mm -hmm. but then it's still god doing it and so i think that's the thing you're choosing which is the active part to submit the passivity mm -hmm. to for god's power and in romans 12 2 it says be be transformed by the renewing of your mind it didn't say transform yourself it said be transformed and so we put ourselves at the mercy of god we submit to him and then he will um give us the power and the insight on how to how to do that how to protect our minds so so far in the film um we have you know in the beginning of the film a botched extraction we have near failure of this mission just from the first level and this is as good a time as any to delve into the character of maul who's played by marion cotillard and she maul is cobb's now deceased wife who continues to surface in his subconscious and wreak havoc in every dream in which he appears and ariana confronts cobb about this on the first level of the dream and he tells her the reason that these disru disruptions have been happening is that back when maul was alive he and maul were experimenting with these dream states and different levels of subconscious and they ended up in limbo and they actually spent decades in limbo building their life together until they just confused it with reality and that's when they decided to kill themselves in the dream in limbo to kick back to reality 
and it worked but Maul continued to believe she was still dreaming and that she needed to kill herself to kick to reality even though she had already done it she was still thinking she was in a dream she tried to convince Cobb that's what they needed to do he tried to convince her no we are in reality and it was somewhat of a stalemate but Maul ended up killing herself thinking she would return to reality she framed Cobb for the death hoping that it would leave him no choice but to kill himself as well along with her and that obviously he did not do that and so he was charged and he had to leave the country and leave the kids with the grandparent so this is this is what Maul, uh, what Cobb has explained to Ariadna about Maul thoughts on this <laughs> well there's a lot to, to, <laughs> there's so to much. yeah to to do to to think about to deal with you know their i mean i think that you know as cliche as it, as it may be right perception can be reality and yeah. and and in in that situation you know maul's perception was her reality she and that's how she acted and it acted you know acted accordingly um you know, then now there there were reasons why that happened. Um, yes. You know, we'll that we'll talk about. Uh, you know, but it it obviously left uh, uh, consequences to for Cobb uh, in dealing with that. I mean, number one, dealing with the loss of a loved one in any form is always uh, difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, dealing with the suicide. Uh, and, and now dealing with a suicide, which he was framed for and having to flee for that and losing <laughs> his children, layer right? Layer. layer upon layer. It's a lot that he's he, he's dealing with. So it's it's kind of understandable, you know, at this point in the movie when you hear the story, um, you know, why he's got some issues and why Maul is, you know, uh, haunting him as one of his demons in his dream, uh, you know, and affecting and sleeping into everything else that he's doing because how could it not? Yeah, I think... Ariadna says your guilt defines her. It's what empowers her in the subconscious. And, and you know, mal, I think, is it means bad in French. And it's like malware for your, your computer. It's particularly insidious in that it enters with some sort of benign, friendly exterior before causing severe, if not irreparable, damage. And it seems like that's what's happening here. This this is his his wife, the memory of his wife, um, haunting him in the subconscious and it's it's jeopardizing this mission so do you accept this theory it's it's the guilt that empowers her i do actually uh, completely i think that that is exactly what she is it, she's to me i saw maul less at, as an actual individual person within the movie and more so a manifestation of Cobb's guilt over what happened right and um uh, which resulted in her death and him having to leave his children. And that's why uh, if, if Cobb knew the construction of the dreams, right, Maul right. would also know the construction of the dreams because she was really just an extension of him. Right. Uh, and that he couldn't control it because he couldn't control his own guilt over what had happened. He couldn't forgive himself, um, you know, which perpetually led to his subconscious sabotaging himself ultimately because he felt that he didn't deserve to succeed or these good things because of you know what what he did he was i think a capable architect but that's why they had to bring on Ariane in the first place right so that he would not know and sabot self-sabotage um but it started to happen anyhow so 
Ariana also says of the team, they have no idea the risk they've taken coming down here. As we go deeper into Fisher and his subconscious, we're also going deeper into you. And I'm not sure we're going to like what we find. So do you think Cobb was unaware of the level of risk everyone was taking on this mission? Or that he was aware, but he just went for it anyway? Because as we talked about in the beginning, the end justifies the means. So I, I'm not sure if he was fully aware of the extent mm. of the risk. Mm -hmm. I think he was certainly aware that there was some risk and that he chose to go forward anyways. Um, but oftentimes I think that, you know, people feel like there may be problems and they may have issues, but they can control them. Right. Yeah. And, and it, it's. You know, uh, like even if it's just, you know, something as simple as smoking. Right. So there are some people who call themselves, oh, I'm, I'm a social smoker or a social drinker or whatever the, you know, the, the case may be. Right. Um, and, and I just do it, you know, from time to time, but I can quit whenever I want. <laughs> right. That you, you know, you hear that a lot. Yes. That they think they're in control of it and that they can do it whenever they want. But they're really in denial. And I think it's the same thing here. I'm sure Cobb knew that there was a risk, but that he thought he could manage that risk. Um, you know, and, and as human beings, we often, you know, uh, think we have more control than we really do. I think that's a great sort of parallel and metaphor for, for us as humans. Like you said, we, we tend to overestimate our ability to suppress the darker side of our nature, or the, the proclivities that are negative. And certainly this is the case with, with Cobb here. But do you think it would change, though, like if he knew mm. how bad it was? Do you think it would change what he did anyway? I don't I don't think it would. And I yeah. think that that's, you know, because his desperation or his need to obtain his ultimate goal in getting back to his family was out outweighed anything else in his yeah. estimation, right? And I think he would have been willing to take the risk, even if he thought that that was the risk, um, or he knew that there you know, how risk, high the risk was. I think he would have been willing to risk it all in order to to achieve that. I agree. So, so why does Ariadna not tell the others about Cobb's secret? So, I mean, there can be many reasons. You know, one thing. And, and I kind of, you know, to harken back to your, your point about why you thought she was the stronger team member, you know, that one of the reasons why I didn't necessarily pick her was her lack of experience. Mm, and and, mm -hmm. and in, I want to say, you know, naivete like to a certain extent. I think that she trusted Cobb and his experience. She was brand new. He's the one who recruited her and, and that she thought or hoped maybe that he would be able to ultimately gain control over Maul and I think that also to be honest there was a sense of that she really wanted to be a part of what was going on in the yeah, mission yeah you know and, and and she probably also got a certain high herself from from creating dream worlds um, right there was she actually had walked out in the beginning when uh, after she first her first uh, interaction or you know encounter with Maul but Cobb said she would be back, right? Because right. reality would be enough. Right. And she came back. And so I think that that kind of also weighed into the situation as well. She knew that if she disclosed it to the rest of the team, right. this whole thing could get shut down. And, you know, selfishly, she didn't want that. Wow. Wow. I have to say, you said exactly what I had written down. 
I'm not reading over your shoulder, yeah. I swear. <laughs> anyway, we That's are re- we are related. Yeah, we are related. Exactly. So this is this is proof here. Exactly what I was gonna say. I think that that lore was a little bit too much because she walked out but she came back. But does a mall exist in each of our subconscious minds, so to speak? Like is there something lurking in our subconscious that can sort of derail whatever positive mission that we're on in life? I think we all have demons to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe not to the level of, of a mall as in Inception, uh, but something you know in our past that haunts us or that we you know think about a moment, a decision, a mistake, it, it might be big, it might be small sometimes, mm-hmm. and sometimes depending on what it is, right, it can come to define our personality and like Maul threaten to take over, uh, you know, who we are. <clears throat> the, you know, the only way to overcome our past, I think, or I believe is, is really to, to confront it, to accept the mistakes, to learn from them and not to let them consume you. But, but I do think that that everybody does have have some 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 things in their past that that I think uh, you know affects how they proceed in their future. I agree. And so, what about the the spiritual component of that in terms of combating that? Like, you you don't want it to overtake you. You don't want it to define you. So, where does your sort of efforts to do that end, and God's mm. power begin? Yeah, I mean, I think that. There are certain things that we are powerless to to truly change or to truly, uh, you know, do for ourselves, um, you know, to a certain extent. Right. I think that, that there is something to, to be said about having self-reflection, being disciplined, but also knowing when you don't have that strength and turning it over and putting it in God's hands yes. and allowing him to free you of it. Um, you, you, I think, you know, we can only take ourselves so far. And at a certain point we have to, you know, walk hand in hand with him and, and uh, you know, and let him take control. I agree. So we're going to keep moving now. Dream level two, which is Arthur's dream. And it takes place in a hotel Cobb runs this con on Fisher on this level where he explains to Fisher that he's dreaming, that Fisher's dreaming, and Cobb tells him that it was actually Browning, his godfather and business partner, who was behind the kidnapping that happened, but which is really dream level one, and that Browning is trying to extract information from Fisher about the business. So that's the that's the story that Cobb tells Fisher in Dream Level 2. And then Cobb goes on to state that he is the head of security in Fisher's subconscious that was hired to protect him from extraction. So the team then captures Browning, which is really Eames impersonating Browning, who admits that he is the kidnapper. Now, Cobb convinces Fisher to submit to sedation so that they can all go into Browning's subconscious to find out why Browning kidnapped him and what he wanted to extract. 
in reality, that's a ruse because they're all going to go into the third level of Fisher's subconscious to complete the inception. So, first of all, this is why I told anyone who hasn't seen the film <laughs> that you're probably not going to understand, uh, huh? even if you have seen it. Yeah. <laughs> so, this con really is essentially a version of what Cobb and Arthur attempted and failed to do with Sato in the beginning. Right? Try to convince him that they are security, but they're actually extractors. Yes. Why does it work here? What do you mean besides the fact that it wouldn't be good for the movie if it failed at that, <laughs> at that point in time? Uh, <laughs> there's that. Yeah. Um, well, I think that... And honestly, I, th- I think the first time that Sato knew they were coming mm-hmm. before they even got there, right? Because he said he was auditioning them for yes. the Inception job. So to a certain extent, he was aware that it was going to happen at some point in time or he let it and he let it happen. Mm. So there's something to be said about that. The fact that he knew it was going to happen. And when he went to the dream state versus Fisher, who's at that point in time, oblivious of it ever going to happening at at all. Good point. Um, Also, I think that Maul got involved a little bit earlier in Saito's dream. Right. He she was. Um, after they have their initial meeting and they left that, but then she shows back up. So I think, again, something else to kind of throw off the works in, in keeping that on track. And right, Maul hadn't necessarily gotten involved with Fisher's dream at that point in time. Correct. Um, so I, I think that the, uh, the, I also think that the setup of the first dream level, right, where, um, where he was taken hostage and made to think uh, that Browning was a part of that, that all kind of put him in, you know, from what I could tell, a more susceptible state. And I think that we're also a little less clear about what Saito's backstory as to the first dream level in his sequence was. True. Because they're just in some room or, or apartment that we think is his love shack somewhere or something like that. Right. But we don't know how he got there, what the storyline was to them being there. Yeah. And so yeah. I think that those are all, you know, important critical things. Um you know, and, and I think that you you see throughout the movie as they're planning this piece by piece that it's all very deliberate each level and how they're doing it and what they're doing and where they're going. Yes. And I think that that, to me, made the key difference at that point uh, in the dream uh, was that he was, a, was particularly susceptible because of how he had been brought to that point. Yes. And I think when you, you mentioned in the beginning about Maul getting involved earlier, because... Dom was aware of the architecture more so in the first with Saito than he was here. I don't know, mm, but maybe yeah, but, you know maybe he was more distanced from the architecture here, and that's why it was allowed to work. But certainly, yeah, I think the fact that that Saito he was auditioning them, and they were there to under the ruse of of being security. So he he had invited, like you said, almost willingly gone into sedation to audition them for this right. versus uh, Fisher who was caught unawares. Now Arthur explains that this con is particularly risky because you make the mark in this case Fisher you make the target aware that he or she is dreaming. And to me there's some underlying message here about the danger of mixing truth with with a lie versus just lying outright. I don't know if you see it the same way. Um, somewhat, I I do, or I think a lie with a bit of truth is more palatable, more Mm -hmm. believable, um, (laughs) 
like Mary Poppins says, right? A spoonful of sugar makes the medicine <laughs> go down, right? It, it's yeah. easier to lie uh, and to, to accept the lie uh, oftentimes, um, you know, and, and t- you know, when you when it comes with some kernel of truth and, and and the person who's being lied to has more reason to accept it. Um, and unfortunately, that can also oftentimes make it more destructive. Yes. I mean, in this climate of fake news and all that <laughs> yeah. so we we have that it was just a little bit but then there's lies so you know i find strong parallels with this particular tactic and what happened in genesis 3 between the serpent and eve what are your thoughts on that that parallel because i saw the serpent presenting eve with some kernel of truth in that you, your eyes will be opened if you eat this fruit, uh, but also lying and saying you're not going to die. Yeah. I mean, the devil is the ultimate deceiver, right? The, the master manipulator. And I think that that is one of the strongest tactics of lying is to add some, some truth to it, right? Telling Eve that if she ate of the fruit, she would be like God was true right right but he left out the consequences yes that she would die uh and to get her to do you know what he wanted her to do in in eating the fruit um and so when you when you leave out you know you know the consequences or when you you're not making that the a choice with full knowledge you know, like I said, it can often lead in, you know, in, in, in Eve's case leads to very destructive, you know, very detrimental consequences, you know, to the whole human race in, in, in this particular example. But um, but yes, no, I, I, I do think that that's, uh, you know, a, a good parallel, uh, you know, for this uh, for this, you know, for a lot of portions of the story. Yeah. Well, we are going to pause here for the moment at the end of this second segment. But we will return for the third and final segment. You're listening to Evidence of Things Screened. This is Evidence of Things Screened. I'm Lincoln Alabaster. My guest is Adrian Bispham. The title of this episode is Dream Job, and the subject is Inception, the film directed by Christopher Nolan and starring Leonardo DiCaprio, and Marion Cotillard. So we concluded segment two, talking about dream level two in the film. And to continue on that theme, we'll begin the third and final segment, talking about dream level three. So dream level three, this dream is Eames's dream, and it's taking place on a snowy mountain fortress. And the team approaches this fortress because it holds the safe that they told Fisher only he alone can hack into it and retrieve that alternate will that is the key to uh, allowing him to break up this company. But the problem is he gets into the fortress and Maul is waiting there for him. She actually kills him, she shoots him, and she sends him to limbo. That's a problem. Saito dies and he also goes into limbo. So Cobb and Ariadna have to follow him there to bring him back. And 
in the meantime, Eames is he he gets to the fortress and he has to defend against the attackers. So and if that wasn't enough, the timing of the kicks to wake everyone up on each dream level is in jeopardy. So each level of the film is more unstable and chaotic than the previous level. And level three is really the embodiment of a lack of control. So can we extrapolate this to mean that, you know, as a person delves deeper into himself or herself uh, and becomes maybe more self-focused that they are then less stable as a person? I don't know about less stable, um, but I, I do think that there's less conscious control that people enjoy um, at a subconscious level than they do on the surface, right? Mm -hmm. Today, you know, you and I made certain conscious choices about what to eat, what to wear, uh, to sit and record this podcast, right? And mm -hmm. there are many reasons for all those things. Um, some of them readily apparent to us, right? We eat to fuel ourselves because physically we have to we wear clothes either to stay warm or because you know partly because society requires it um <laughs> we decided to re record the podcast right because we both enjoy movies and talking about that and we hope that you know the people that are listening gain something be it educational or entertainment wise uh or spiritually but um each of those decisions are also supported by a number of subconscious motivations that we don't even realize or use or think about on a conscious level when we're making those choices you know mm -hmm. and um the deeper that you go the less control that you have and to a certain extent the le the more fragile the mind is i think i wonder though in, in the spiritual context though all that self-focus is that a healthy thing spiritually or is that sort of contrary to what maybe the Bible hmm. would advise? That's a good, that's a good question. I mean, I think that the Bible, uh, and you know, in, in the teachings, uh, you know, of Jesus clearly weighs in favor of focusing on others mm -hmm. and serving others and, and thinking more about others than you do yourself. Right. Yeah. Um, but I don't think, that that is to the neglect of yourself right or to the detriment of yourself mm -hmm. and and i also think that it can be difficult to truly serve others if you don't know yourself and if you aren't in tune with what your own issues are and and things that you're personally dealing with right like you people have different issues and different let's say temptations right right and if if you know if if your temptation is overeating you probably don't want to serve people by being in the kitchen right <laughs> and so that's something that you need to know about yourself to properly serve others so i i don't think that god would say that you shouldn't l figure these things out about yourself i think that the danger comes when it when you become completely self-involved or self-centered and you're always just thinking about how can i better myself and how can i gain something for myself but it should really be about how can i be the best version of what god wants me to be and then use that to serve others very well said christ when he talked about really boiling everything down to two commands love god with all your heart and then love your neighbor 
as yourself. Right. So that is in that is in, inherently like that you know yourself, you love yourself, and then you know you love others as well. So I, I totally agree with that. So let's now move into limbo in the movie, which is basically characterized by crumbling wasteland. Cobb and Ariadna, they find Maul. She's holding Fisher hostage. <laughs> Poor Fisher in this movie, man. This guy is just <laughs> yeah. knocked about. Yeah. Um, here we discover the truth. Cobb knew Inception was possible because he did it to Maul first. Now, what Cobb left out of the story he told Ariadna in level one was that when he and Maul were living in limbo and she didn't want to leave, he was the one who planted the idea in her mind that their environment was only a dream and that they needed to kill themselves to awake in reality. And it worked. But when she woke up in reality, that idea just took hold and she was convinced that she was still dreaming and needed to kill herself to wake up. So it's like he he turned on that switch, but he, he couldn't turn it off. And she just was ultimately believing she was in dream mode. And as we know, she did kill herself. Uh, unfortunately, she did it in the real world as well. And Cobb, he finally acknowledges his role in Maul's death in this scene in the film. And, and Cobb says, an idea is like a virus. It can grow to define you or destroy you. And that was certainly true for Maul. But, and we talked a little bit about this before, if you substitute the word guilt for idea, that guilt is like a virus, I believe that's true for Cobb. Agree? I do. I, I think that Cobb's guilt over what he did to Maul grew to define him, essentially, um, throughout the entire mission it you know from beginning to end it, it was always there underlying the surface and, and kind of driving him in one way or another it really I think was the driving force behind the entire plot of the movie really if you you know in, in some you know for some uh, in some respects yeah uh, you know um, and I think he always lived with that and, and almost allowed it to to destroy him and I think that if it wasn't for this specific mission coming up at this point in time, it probably would have eventually. I agree. So in, in the end now, this has been exposed. The inception, we found out Cobb did this to Maul. So now we're here in limbo. And to get out, Ariadna improvises a kick for her and Fisher to return to dream level three. Because we still have this matter of inception, the whole mission, <laughs> it still has not been accomplished. So they kick to dream level three, which is the snowy fortress. And Eames uses a defibrillator to revive Fisher. And now Fisher is able to complete the hack into the safe and find that alternate will. And that allows him to have this idea to split up his conglomerate, the his father's business. So... Inception complete at last. The mission is is done. This is the main mission of the film, right? But at this point, it almost maybe to me, maybe it's just to me, it felt maybe anticlimactic or ancillary at best in relation to the Cobb and and Mall story. Did you agree with that? And 
if so, do you think that that was Nolan's intent, Christopher Nolan's intent? Uh, I I do think it was his intent. I, honestly, I and maybe only by the time you get to the end, like you say, really felt like the main point or uh, of of the story really was Cobb and Maul and Cobb's redemption story to a certain extent and getting over what he was, you know, what had happened, coming to admit it. You know, they didn't specifically say it in the film, but I got the feeling that um, when that that was the first time that he had actually told anyone else that he had done that to her. Yes. Um, And so I think that that was a huge point for him. And so to me, like I said, I felt that the main mission was was Cobb to get back to his children and to deal with the demons that he had right maul her suicide the loss of his children him being framed for her suicide and the whole reason that he even only took the job of inception in the first place was to 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 gain that goal and it's you know it's only solidified by the fact that you know we never actually i you know to be completely honest we never really do learn whether inception worked for fisher that's true. If you think about it. That's very true. Right? Because you don't see the end result we, in we reality. Don't know. You just know that they got to the final subconscious we level. Don't know. <laughs> you, you took something else I was going to say. So. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> My fault. That's good. That's good, though. That's right? good. That's but, good. Saves but, time. But, saves time. But, but we do know that Cobb got back to his kids, right? That, yes. to me, that is just the the, the perfect uh, reason why th- that it showed that that was the point of the entire thing, right? The Inception right. mission was just the a means to an end. Exactly. I wasn't going to say because we never actually know if he broke up the company or not. It's assumed that he would. So we'll, we'll get to that in a second. Um, maybe this movie isn't as complicated as we yeah. thought. <laughs> or maybe we just think alike. <laughs> I think it's that. I think it's the latter. Uh, in Limbo, now we, we know Ariana kicked back her and Fisher, but Cobb is still in Limbo. And he finds uh, Saito, who presumably shoots Cobb and himself back to present-day reality because the last scene we see of them in Limbo uh, Cobb slides him a gun and he has a gun with him and so then the next thing you know they're on they're back on the flight in reality so the assumption is that he shot Cobb that kicked he shot himself and that kicked but I have so many questions about this we'll, we'll get to that in a second but on the remaining leg of the flight he makes the call that pardons Cobb and like we said we we don't know like he just assumes that Fisher is going to break up the company, but yeah. I mean, this is the well, whole he, point. Yeah. Well, he did say when he gave him the job, essentially that they, he knew that he would have to do that, right? That right. he would have to make that call regardless of whether he knew if it, it was quote unquote successful or not in reality, because, okay. because they were headed to America and, right. and that's what Cobb was taking the risk, right? He tells him before they get in the plane, like true. if I get, uh, you know, once I land there, like, you know, that this thing better go through. True. So, true. True. So Saito took, you know, he took some risk as well, you know, and, and I, and, and to be, I mean, I think he went there. He wanted to be in the dream, like we said in the beginning, right. so that he could make sure that it was successful and watch it for himself. But, but did he <laughs> see it? Right. <laughs> but, he, but he died. He died. So he never really saw it happen. <laughs> exactly. So how does he know? <laughs> exactly. That's what, was, <laughs> that's what I was going to say. It was like, wait a second. He died yeah. before yeah. Fisher was able to do this. Yeah. So how does he know and how can he verify? 
So I have a, th- a theory on why he didn't. Okay. Even though, let's say, I, I think th- I don't think he knew. Right. Because I don't think that there was any way for him to know. Yes. But I think that the what they all went through together, and in particular, Saito having gone to Limbo, and, and we talked about how long uh, Limbo feels in, 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 in relation to actual reality. Yes. So Saito probably spent, you know, decades... In limbo, in limbo, in his mind, right? right? And Cobb came down there to mm. rescue him and saved him from that. Mm. And so I think at the end of the day, mm. Saito probably decided that regardless of whether or not it was completely successful, that Cobb earned his respect I and he, like he deserved that. to get what he wanted. I like that. I think that makes complete and total sense. And just also confirms that Christopher Nolan is a genius. It's just that <laughs> yeah. it's amazing. So anyway, Cobb returns home. This is the end. He can't help but spin the top. But he's so distracted by the reunion with his children. So he leaves the totem. He leaves the top spinning on the table. And the screen cuts to black before we see whether the top topples over or not. So, of course, the question is, do you believe that the totem falls? I believe the totem falls. I, I think that the main, and I think that there's some, uh, you know, uh, evidence of this in, in the film, right? The main indicator to me was that throughout the entire film and, and all of uh, Cobb's memories or dreams of his children, you never see their faces because yes. that is uh, that was the last memory that he had of them before he had to leave, right? And right. he tells... Uh, um, uh, Andrade, and I know I'm pronouncing her name wrong. Uh, uh, oh, yeah, Ariadna. Ariadna, there you go, yeah. sorry. Uh, about the fact that he was standing there and he wanted to call out to them, but he didn't, right? So he yeah. just sees the back of their heads, and that's what he sees in his dreams because that's what he saw before he left in reality. But when he gets back to them at the end, they turn around and he actually sees their faces. So to me, that was an indicator of, of the fact that he was in reality. But to be honest, actually, I think there's the bigger question for me was really, does it matter? <laughs> does it matter whether or not he's in reality or he's in a dream if he is where he wants to be and he has what he wants? Mm, mm. That is a good question. I don't think it matters. I don't think it matters ultimately to him. It matters to us as the viewer to know, oh, is he dreaming? Is this real? Because maybe there's a sense of, completion for us or that the movie is complete because oh he he finally got back to reality but to him as we know he and and maul spent decades in limbo just being happy together in something that wasn't reality so he may be fine decades watching his kids grow up and not have any problem with that so i don't think it matters i think that is a great question i don't think it does matter to him so when you think about this in, in sort of the Christian or the spiritual parallel, is the, what is the equivalent? I mean, in terms of he ultimately for him, it didn't it didn't matter whether he was in this particular dream world or if he was in reality, as long as he just kind of got what he wanted. He was with his children. That was it. And that's the only thing that mattered. So many times it's like, in life, if we, we have certain dreams, if I just get a particular job or if I get married or something like that, then that's 
all that will matter mm. from there and then everything else is is cool is that something to be garnered from this ending here like he was so singular about this and he got it and that's just okay that's good <laughs> and it sort of raises the expectations in terms of what we have in our own dreams yeah i think that i mean well for one thing you know film you know for as ma amazing as it can be and you know uh as all that it can do and speak to about the human condition right it, mm -hmm. it, it can o it only it does that in a limited span of time yes and there always has to be an end uh, and oft most times I think that they want the, it to be a quote-unquote happy ending and, and having the uh, protagonist gain a goal or achieve something and get what they want, right? right. And so there's, so there's that aspect of it. But, but in reality, it's, in, it's a never-ending or a story, right? It's something that's, a, it's, that's continual in the sense that you may achieve your dream but your life typically doesn't end with that, right? Your life isn't over because you've gotten the job that you want. Your life isn't over because you get married or because you have kids right. or because you buy a house, you know, whether or not it has a white picket fence or not, right? <laughs> there's, there's all these things, these uh, achievement markers that we ha you know, hold out for ourselves to kind of say once i get this i'll i'll be I'll there be or i'll be fine i'll make it right but it but it's not there's always then something else something more so i think that learning how to be satisfied and fulfilled in what you have mm -hmm. with what you have and where you are in life um you know we, we, not necessarily saying that you don't strive to achieve more right. because you can and you should um but not necessarily making that not letting that define you and saying that you yourself are a failure or a success as a person um, because of the things that you have done or achieved in your life. Right. Or haven't. Or haven't. Right. Yeah. And so for the for the Christian with the idea of the return of Christ, like that is mm. that that right. reunion is sort of the same goal here is like. That's the ultimate goal, right, for a Christian is that we are reunited with Christ. Of course, in the film Inception, he, he is the father. He's wanting to be reunited with his kids. And, well, I mean, he went to depths to make that happen. So mm -hmm. you could maybe make that parallel yeah, with, yeah. with Christ. He did right. what it took. He died in order to make that mm -hmm, happen. Mm -hmm. So, But if we flip it around from our perspective, and that's our goal to be reunited with him, how does that inform like the level that we're on right now you know <laughs> i want to say that i feel like we're close to the end or close to the final level as it were you know mm -hmm. kicking up through the dream sphere <laughs> uh as as it were um and that yes right that that should be you know every uh christian's ultimate goal and, and what we want to achieve and even then like i said at the end at that point you know the idea is that it's not over because we're we're then going to live in eternity, you know, for eternity with Christ, right? In a perfect world, right? But you know, it's the end of the suffering and the negativity and you know humanity's mistakes, as it were, and the beginning of you know something unimaginably better, right? And that's something that we should all look forward to. No, I agree. We kick up from from that level into a, a much greater level. 
So we'll conclude. There's some questions here that we don't have time to discuss, but I just want to at least acknowledge them. That Cobb explicitly says that one person cannot handle another person's totem because it, it compromises the integrity. So it's explicitly said that Maul's totem was the top. So how is Cobb handling the totem? It's not his. That's just one. When the team kicked up from level two to level one, um, they didn't wake up in reality on the plane when the van hit the water, which that was supposed to be the other kick, right? They went from level two in the elevator to level one, falling in the van. Then the van hit the water. They were supposed to kick to reality, but you saw them on the beach. Yeah. Yeah. How did they then kick back to reality? That's another one. And then when Fisher was kicked up from limbo, he went to level three and Eames revived him with a defibrillator. But when Cobb and Sato did it, they kicked up from limbo straight to the plane. Well, not necessarily. I think you may just, maybe that just wasn't shown. It wasn't shown. Okay. All right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So. And I think um, to your first, the total question, I think the short answer is because Maul was dead. Maul was dead. And it didn't okay. matter. So okay. She didn't need a totem anymore. So, so, yeah. So, that's the that's the workaround for that yeah. for that rule is that if the person is dead, right. then you can handle their totem. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, that is the conclusion of this podcast. Adrian, Whew. thanks so much. This is our, our longest podcast episode so far. But I, I think the subject, the film, definitely warrants that. Well, um, I'm honored to be breaking ground. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you, you we did this together. So maybe one day we'll, we'll find a way to do Lost or some other <laughs> series. Yeah. Uh, but to all our listeners, thank you for hanging in with us in this episode. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode of Evidence of Things Screened. Until then, I'm Lincoln Alabaster. Keep your faith up. Evidence of Things Screen is an Advent Hope Ventures production in association with Church of the Advent Hope, a Seventh-day Adventist community on the Upper East Side of Manhattan in New York City. Go to adventhope.org for more information. Evidence of Things Screen is produced by Todd Stout, Tony Sebro, and Lincoln Alabaster, with technical assistance from Nicholas Zork, Roberto Rutherford, Dwight Francis, and Jim Bogusky. Music provided by Jaw Rockin' Productions.